Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas, and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, fam? Lucas here. I want to take a moment to announce a couple of things to all my new listeners on the podcast. Firstly, if you're looking to upgrade your brain function, whether that be through reducing brain fog, enhancing verbal fluency, improving confidence, motivation, drive, or even orgasm intensity, then check out my nootropics course, which can be found on my website at www.ergogenic.health. And you'll see at the top, it will say courses where you can use the discount code BYB15 to save 15% off. In addition, I also have a sleep optimization masterclass and a testosterone optimization course that can also be accessed on my website. Again, you can use the same discount code BYB15 to save 15% off. What's up, guys? And today I am super excited because I have what I believe to be one of the world's leading experts on body recomposition, muscle growth, and fat loss. He is actually one of the smartest researchers in the space of sports nutrition and training. And joining me today is Christopher Barakat. Welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me on, man. It's a very humbling introduction, but I appreciate it. Uh, Look, I've been... I've been following your work quite closely when I first started my um, Instagram 
you're one of the early early pages I started following and started learning from. So yeah, hats off to you, man. You've actually um, yeah, you've taught me a lot, and I'm sure millions of other people. So do you want to give my audience a bit of a, a summary or a, a synopsis of your background? For sure, for sure. Thanks a lot, man. Um, so essentially, just to kind of kick it back and give you a quick general overview, I was always into physical fitness of some sport. When I was super young, I was really into martial arts. Then I was obsessed with basketball throughout my middle school, high school years. And then after high school, I got really involved with bodybuilding. So I competed in 2011 as a teenager. And that kind of changed the trajectory of my academic experience and what I really wanted to study and pursue. So I studied athletic training, um, which was, you know, a real focus on sports rehab and emergency care and stuff like that. And I thought I was going to go the physical therapy route, but after working so many years in physical therapy clinics and diving deeper and deeper into the bodybuilding world and the coaching space, I just wanted to study exercise and nutritional sciences. So I ended up getting my master's in that from the University of Tampa. And immediately post-graduation, um, they hired me on to continue doing research there and to teach there part-time. So um, I do that kind of part-time, full-time, and then I coach you know, full-time. So those are my main things. I'm very deeply involved with the competitive natural bodybuilding space. But once I got involved in the, re- the research world as a grad student, um, I kept seeing this recomposition phenomenon occur in a lot of our subjects. And it wasn't something that people in the evidence-based space were talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, So I kept seeing this observed in our lab. And then I was looking at multiple research studies from all over the world. And these results were demonstrated from the other studies, but it wasn't really part of the discussion. Like they would just talk about the muscle being gained and they weren't really talking about, you know, either some of the subjects or the group averages losing fat. Um, throughout the training intervention. So that really caught my eye because at the end of the day, people don't just want to lose weight. They want to improve body composition. Mm. And there's plenty of times where I work with my clients and we get started and their weight is not moving much at all, but their physique looks way different and they're losing inches around their waist. So we know that they're losing fat and building muscle at the same time. Um, But in those situations, we don't have the objective data from assessment tools like a DEXA scan or a bioelectrical impedance or something fancy, but we clearly see it in the photos and we see it through their waist circumference measurements and stuff like that. So yeah, man, um, this past September of 2020, our research review paper that I led came out on body recomposition and it really was the first scientific paper that covered, you know, gaining muscle and losing fat at the same time. So that, that really took off and, and kind of made a lot of noise in the evidence-based space. Yeah, it's definitely a, um, it's a topic that's sort of been brought up numerous times throughout like various PTs and um, muscle building experts always talk about, oh, look, is it possible to build muscle and burn fat at the same time? So it's amazing sort of to see that you've been involved in sort of pioneering that sort of research. So do you want to maybe explore that with our audience, what you found in that study? Yeah, for sure. So I'll take it a couple steps back. A lot of people in the evidence-based space, they would, they would admit or they would acknowledge that people can lose fat and build muscle at the same time, especially if they're beginners or if they were obese to start. Um, they wouldn't really argue that, right? But 
they wouldn't, they would argue or they would say you have to be in a caloric surplus or you have to be in a calorie deficit and you need to be focusing on either fat loss or muscle building. And you shouldn't really aim to do both at the same time. Um, if you're, you know, an intermediate or advanced trainee and there are certain components to that where there is some merit, but it's so misunderstood and so many people are leaving a lot on the table because they're not optimizing their variables that I genuinely believe like 90% of the people you see at any commercial gym can undergo a recon. So I'm assuming the majority of the people listening to this can. Now, if you're an elite athlete, you're extremely advanced and you're like a high level bodybuilder. Yeah. Your goal should be, okay, I'm going to be in a surplus and I'm in a massing phase or, okay, I'm in a fat loss focus phase. But literally like if I go to a normal LA fitness commercial gym down the street from me, I would be confident that I can get like 90% of the people in there to recon if they executed everything I told them to do. So, Hmm. um, what happened was when I, when I was in graduate school in 2016, we ran a study that had nothing to do with body recomposition. It was looking at training interventions, um, auto-regulation of exercise selection, and how that would impact muscle gain and strength gain. So we primarily reported um, lean body mass changes from the DEXA scan, as well as their strength performance changes. But when looking at that research uh, a bit deeper, and when I was analyzing each individual, and I had all the raw data in front of me, I saw that I believe six or seven out of like the 18 subjects went through this recomp phenomenon. I was like, that's pretty freaking cool that, you know, they gained lean body mass and lost fat mass at the same time. Like that's what everyone wants to do. So essentially that happened. And then literally three, four months later, we run a study on our volleyball team and the recomp was insane. They gained like six pounds of lean mass and lost six pounds of fat mass on average in only a seven week time frame. So I was just like, so I thought that was like super epic. And then as the years went on, I saw more data being published. Actually, um, one study was from USF from my man, Dr. Bill Campbell. He was looking at like aspiring female physique competitors and they had a high protein group and a low protein group and the high protein group built more muscle and lost more fat over that eight or 10 week training period. So I just kept seeing it over and over. I'm like, man, I just need to, I need to write a review paper about this and go through the entire body of literature and see what I can put together. So the study kind of evaluated previous research interventions and research studies that were done. And then I kind of gave an overview on what we saw and what we observed. Mm. Just jumping back a a second, you sort of mentioned Bill Campbell's study where they were looking at um, in, in women, how high with the protein did they go? Off the top of my head, um, I believe they they went up to 2.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. So it wasn't insane. Yeah. Um, but they labeled that their high protein group. And then they had a lower protein group that might have been like the RDA, maybe 0.8 grams mm. um, per kilogram of body weight, I believe. Um, so I, I think those were the numbers. But yeah, the cool thing too, they showed individual data points for that. And not one subject in the high protein group lost any lean mass. Everybody gained, but people gained at different levels, different magnitudes. Right. In the low protein group, 
some people lost lean body mass while losing total body weight, even though they were undergoing a resistance training program. So that's like the last thing you want, right? You want to make sure you're preserving as much lean mass as possible. Um, so we know that, you know, moderate to high protein diets are super important depending on your level of physical activity and what your goals are. Um, mm -hmm. There's been a lot of cool research on that if you want to chat about that a bit. Oh, absolutely. Let's, let's delve into some of the... Um some of the recommended ranges, like I know you mentioned 2.2 kilograms. I've heard the number 1.6 to 2.2 yep. floating around a lot per kilogram of body weight. Um, yeah. but do you want to delve into that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, the international society of sports nutrition, they use a range between like 1.6 to 2.2, which I think is good depending on what athletic endeavor you're participating in how much muscle protein breakdown is actually happening from your sport or training activity um, and like what your goals are. I'm not the biggest fan of just using body weight and I'll explain that in a minute, but um, you know, there's a huge difference between a cross country runner, a basketball player and somebody that's bodybuilding. So muscle protein breakdown is going to be way higher in somebody that is resistance training at high volumes at high intensities. Right. So it's going to vary depending on the sport and the goal. Um, but more importantly, I like, I like utilizing lean body mass as your determinant for how much protein you need. So if I told an obese individual, let's say we have a 200, should I use pounds or kilograms? Go kilograms. Yeah. Kilograms. So let's say we have a hundred kilo person. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to tell them to consume 2.2 kilograms of protein. Uh, sorry, 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. Oh. I'm not going to just prescribe them 220 grams of protein per day if they're a hundred kilos. And let's just say they're at, uh, let's just say they're at, you know, 20% body fat. So they might only have 165 pounds of lean mass or so. I like using lean body mass as their, their reference uh, points for how much protein they need. So my recommendation is 1.2 grams to 1.6 grams of protein per pound of lean body mass. Mm. And the more body fat you have, the closer to the 1.2 you should be, the less protein you need. And then the leaner you are and the more physically active you are, the closer to that 1.6 gram per pound of lean body mass you can be. So it's kind of like a sliding scale depending on your situation, your level of activity and your body composition. But that's the scale. And it's not a huge scale, 1.2 to 1.6. I mean, you can just say 1.4 for everybody. Yeah. Um, but that's grams per pound of lean body mass. Yeah. So just as a reference, you know, I weigh 185 pounds and I eat anywhere from 220 protein to 250 protein. So my protein is pretty high. Mm. Can we, let's backtrack a little bit. I know you mentioned this, this term lean body mass now, and you've yes. also mentioned um, the DEXA scan, which I've personally done myself. It is the gold standard of, um, you know, body composition analysis. So let's talk about for those who don't have access to the DEXA, is there an, any other way to determine lean body mass? Yeah. Um, so the DEXA is awesome. It's definitely the gold standard for bone mineral density, and it's pretty darn good for body composition, uh, lean mass and, and fat mass and everything like that. So essentially lean body mass are things like your tissue, uh, anything that's fat free. So tissue, bone, 
uh, organs, stomach, blood volume, all that stuff. And even water is going into a lot of lean compartments and lean tissue. Um, so if you don't have access to a cool tool like a DEXA, you absolutely still can guesstimate your lean body mass. The worst case scenario is looking at yourself in the mirror and looking at people that have been tested. Like you can type in Google body fat percentages and they'll show you pictures of people at 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, 20, 22, 24. And you can just get an idea of where you might be just compared to other people that have been tested. Um, but a really easy way to do it is doing the skin fold, the skin caliper assessment. Um, yeah, it can vary if you have experience or don't have experience, but doing a three-site skin fold assessment or a seven-site skin fold assessment is a pretty darn good tool to get a good range of what your body fat percent is and how much lean mass you have and how much fat mass you have. So Was you that, can literally guesstimate visually or you can actually test yourself. Yeah, you mentioned the three-point versus seven-point. Um, the skin fold testing, which one does Charles Poliquin... I think I know he has like a particular, which one was he using? I'm assuming he would be using the seven site. So you have, yeah, the Jackson Pollock is the formula for that. Yeah. The seven site's more accurate than the three site. A lot of times the three site is like right next to your belly button, your tricep and your calf or your thigh. So it's like one from your trunk, one yeah. from your upper body, and then one from your lower limb. But the seven site's way more accurate where you're doing essentially next to your belly button, close to your hip, in between your, your armpit and your hip, your chest, your subscap area, your thigh, your tricep. So it's, it's way more detailed. Um, and that is kind of important because we all store our body fat quite differently. You know, some people maintain pretty lean trunks and they might, you know, have a six pack year round where other people, they can be really lean in their arms and shoulders, but they store a ton of fat around their midsection and, and their love handle area. So yeah. the more sites you have, the more accurate it would be. Yeah. I want to share my results to, to my audience real quick with the DEXA. Sure. Um, my reading came back at 14.1% total body fat. And I had so many guys message me saying, oh, there's no way that's correct. You're much lower. And that's purely because like... I'm pretty lucky with genetic, like genetic wise. Mm. I don't store any fat on the abdominal area at all, but everything goes to like the, the buttocks or like other, or my back and stuff. Yeah. Um, again, we can't, and this is true, right? Like we cannot decide where body fat, we cannot even, we cannot spot fat reduce, you know? So like, I think that's just more genetic component to it. hundred percent. The yeah. only thing you can do is develop more muscularity in that area so that area kind of looks leaner yeah. than, it, than it is or more muscle is poking through the skin and pushing against the skin. So like um, I, I actually store a decent amount of body fat in my midsection, but I also don't have good muscularity of my rectus abdominis. Like it's not a well-developed muscle. So that also works against me and I need to be pretty darn lean for my abs to look pretty good. So yeah, yeah. there's a huge genetic component to it. Yeah, there was a period of time, I think it was like a, for like two years straight, I was, I was just treating abs like any other muscle group and I was absolutely destroying them. Like I do like a, a one hour workout and be sore for literally five days. That's I, I just absolutely destroy them. Um, and I think that's, it's actually caused overproduct. Like my abdominals are actually, they look stupid, man. They're just like, 
<laughs> that's sick. Yeah. That's um, what I need to start doing. I'm going to do a, a one hour ab workout some morning. Yeah. You'll be literally, um, I stay sore for like four to five days. I just yeah, have man. nuked them. I need to, uh, I need to step up my game there because abs is that one thing I don't enjoy training. Um, unfortunately. So, hmm. and it's a weak pot on my physique. So it's really what I need to do for competitive purposes, not for just like, not to look good, but like literally, so I do better when I compete next time. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's sort of um, segue back to like protein. So I want to talk about, and this is something that I've always wanted to know personally is like, let's say you're not hitting that required amount of protein to, to build muscle, but you've upped your carbohydrates significantly. Like what's, what's going to happen in that scenario? Yeah. So there's one thing I want to mention that's I think super important. A lot of people think if you eat a high protein diet and you're in a calorie surplus, you're going to gain muscle. Yeah. You can eat 300 grams of protein per day and be in a surplus and still build zero muscle if you don't have a training stimulus. Yeah. And I think that's really, really important because you can also build muscle eating way less protein as long as you're like progressing in the gym and there's a huge genetic component to that. But just because your protein is high does not mean you're guaranteed to build muscle. Um, on the opposite end, like going back to the question, if you reduce your protein, or you're kind of not hitting like an optimal protein intake for yourself. And the majority of those calories are coming from carbohydrate. I mean, a few things can happen. Um, you might be slightly under recovered because maybe your muscle protein breakdown is greater than your muscle protein synthetic responses. So from a, like a nitrogen standpoint, you might be in a deficit in that sense. Like you don't have enough nitrogen and amino acids coming in to properly recover. So that's a possibility. Um, but at the same time, if you're getting a ton of carbohydrate, at least you're kind of ensuring that your glycogen level should be full and uh, your performance should be good on that side of the spectrum. Like at least the one piece of the puzzle is in a decent place. Mm. Um, but yeah, essentially you're just hindering your recovery and your performance and therefore you're probably hindering the adaptation outcomes that come through the training and through the recovery. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. The thing, the thing about that is like, it just, when I watch those movies and like, I see like prison, you know, prison inmates, they're doing like a shit ton of body weight training, and like calisthenics, things like that. But yeah. there's no way they're hitting their protein intake, right? Like how? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Sure. yeah definitely. I, I hear you there. Um, and it's funny, man, because when I was kind of sifting through the literature, I would see some like going back to that volleyball study where those girls gained seven pounds of lean mass and lost like six pounds of fat mass or whatever, just in seven weeks time, their protein intake wasn't crazy high by any means. It was definitely sufficient, um, but it was like way lower than me. Right. But I think one thing is they, they're college volleyball players that yeah, they resistance train for strength and conditioning purposes, but like they're not bodybuilders. So they're, you know, further away from their genetic potential when it comes to their muscle building capabilities. So they're able to build muscle at a faster rate because they're less experienced. You know, they have experience, but they're not like advanced weightlifting athletes. They're volleyball players that resistance train to help them with their volleyball game. Right. So um, yeah, it's really interesting. I think the more advanced you become, 
you might need more protein to facilitate your growth or mm-hmm. to kind of maximize and make sure you're as supportive as possible with it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's sort of um, discuss a little bit on the role that protein, the role that protein plays in affecting fat mass. Like how does increasing one's protein take affect thermogenesis and, and fat yes. mass? Awesome question. So we know that the three components of total daily, total daily energy expenditure, your caloric output, comes from your resting metabolic rates, right? Your physical activity and your needs. So your non-exercise activity thermogenesis and your actual conscious intentional exercise and activities. And then the last thing is your the thermic effect of food. And we know that protein has the highest thermic effects. And there have been some really cool protein overfeeding studies done by Antonio and colleagues, Jose Antonio out of uh, Nova Southeastern here on the other side of Florida. And there are some studies that have shown subjects eating 500 more calories per day than their counterparts, but it was all coming from protein. And they gained more lean mass and they lost more fat mass compared to their counterparts that were eating less protein. And, and their counterparts that were eating less protein were still eating like a high protein diet. But this study was literally like intentionally doing excessive protein. They did 3.4 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. So it was a very, very high protein diet. Um, but it seems like that thermic effect of protein is increasing their energy expenditure to a certain degree. And they're also getting all these extra amino acids that can be utilized for things like protein synthesis. So Mm. it's kind of like a win-win. Again, for those that are dieting, eating more protein is also amazing because it's the most satiating macronutrient. So if hunger is one of those things that decreases your adherence, eating more protein is going to keep you fuller for longer and it should improve your adherence as long as like you enjoy eating the protein you're enjoying and you're making it fun and tasty and the whole night, like something that's sustainable. But Mm. uh, yeah, the the science behind it is, is there. The evidence is there. We don't fully understand like exactly why, but we see that it's producing positive outcomes. Yeah. 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 Curious to know, Chris, have you delved into any of the research around um, vegetarian protein sources versus meat at all? Um, To a certain extent, I recall one study off the top of my head. It was in older subjects. Um, They compared a omnivore diet to a vegetarian diet while these people were resistance training, but it was, it was older, it was older people. Um, And I do know that the omnivore diet had more gains in lean mass and more fat loss. And the, and the, the vegetarians or vegans actually lost a little bit of lean mass and like whatever the body composition outcomes weren't as good. However, I will say if you are consuming complete protein sources, um, and you're getting in enough total quantity as well as good quality, you should be successful on it. It's just, way more difficult. Um, I think vegan protein powders are awesome. Like when you have a rice and pea protein blend, it's the same amino acid profile as whey protein. 
So you're getting all of your essential amino acids, you're getting a high amount of leucine, you're getting a good amount of those branch chain amino acids that are really important for protein synthesis. You just digest it way slower. Um, and unfortunately, it's way more expensive. So for vegans and vegetarians, that's literally like the only demographic of people that I recommend branch chain amino acid supplementation. For 99% of the population, it's a total waste of money. Yeah. Um, but for vegans and vegetarians, let's say you get, let's just say you get like 18 to 20 grams of protein in a meal instead of like 25 to 35. If you took like five to eight grams of BCAAs with that meal, like supplemented with it, you would maximize the protein synthetic response yeah. um, and you would be way better off. So it's like one of the only supplements or one of the only times I actually recommend that supplement. Otherwise, you're better off, uh, like you're flushing your money down the toilet for the most part. It's crazy, man. Because I, I, um, I just did a post on the um, detrimental effects on, on, on BCAAs in terms of it affecting neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin, and then also um, how it can affect insulin sensitivity, although there's only like three or four studies on that. Um, but it's a good point. Like uh, for, the, for the vegans, adding in that additional BCAA content on top of their um, diet that's lacking, it just makes sense. Yes. Really just making yeah. up for what they're, they're, lose, they're not getting in. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, for them, I, I really do think it's worth it. Um, five grams with a meal. I almost feel like, man, if that was a long-term study, like a <laughs> 10 to 12-week study, where they had vegans that were supplementing with BCAAs and then non-vegans and omnivores, I, I really do believe the results would be extremely similar. Mm. That would be cool to see. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sure. Well, we, need some, sort of... we need some vegan group to fund that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We can, there's plenty Where's of the vegan money at? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What about... Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on like the differences between fasted cardio versus non-fasted cardio. Like, what, What's your personal stance on this topic? Yeah. So actually, uh, my, my colleague, Dr. Guillermo Escalante and I, we wrote a review paper on this. So it's, it's an open access paper. You guys can check it out. Um, and man, fasted cardio versus fat cardio. When looking at the literature, there really isn't much of a difference in terms of net fat loss. Okay. Literally no study has ever showed any statistically significant differences. Um, but there's a caveat to it. So all of those studies were done in obese or overweight individuals. We can't take those results and apply it to super lean individuals. We, we shouldn't carry over those results and assume it would be the same thing. Um, and I would also say that in some studies, there was a small effect size difference where there was like a slight trend that favored the fasted cardio to a small, small degree. However, you know, a lot of these studies were like eight weeks long. Now, if you extended that same exact study, but it was 16 weeks long, that effect size magnitude might've grown and it might've been statistically significant over a longer period of time. So these are some things that I like hypothesize. Um, but with all that said, regardless of what the results are, I think I, I don't tell people it's better than fed cardio ever. Cause there's no data to support that. I'd be talking out of my butt if I said that, but I do think it's still an option and a tool. Um, if people prefer to just wake up and get it out of the way, I think it also 
improves your mood right off the bat just by getting your day started with physical activity. You're going to release some of those, you know, feel good, uh, you know, serotonin and dopamine is going to be upregulated and stuff like that. So it can just start your day on a positive note. Um, and then for some people it can improve their adherence. You know, if they say, Hey, I'm going to work my nine to five, and then I'm going to do 45 minutes of cardio at 5 PM, but you know, dinner's waiting for them at home or they have some other family obligation or they're just burnt out from the workday. They might say, man, I'm just going to go home today. I'm not doing my cardio. Mm -hmm. So if they did it at 7am and they just cranked it out of the way, they didn't miss it. So it could improve adherence for some people. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, some of my clients do fasted cardio. Some of my clients do fed cardio. A lot of times I leave it up to them. Um, I personally like doing fasted cardio when I'm contest prepping. Yeah. I just like getting it out of the way. Um, I will say if you are doing fasted cardio for the most part, you probably want to do like a low intensity steady state, something where you're not actually trying to like improve your performance on. And yeah. your primary goal is like, Hey, I'm just trying to burn some extra calories and increase my expenditure. Then cool. Do a little bit of lifts. If you're doing cardio for performance benefits and like you want to a improve your cardiovascular fitness to the largest extent possible and or you want to like improve your endurance performance, you will perform better when you're fed. So if that's your goal, you probably should be fed. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Um, like no track athlete is going to like not eat before their event. Like they're, they want to make sure they're fueled, right? So depends why you're doing your cardio. But I am um, an advocate for it, I think. And I do think there may be an advantage to it depending on the population and the demographic and the context. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a great way to summarize it because there's a lot of, um, a lot of confusion around the topic. I'm um, similar to you in that regard. I do, I actually do like doing low intensity, steady state. I've got my treadmill desk. I do 10,000 steps first thing in the morning, as soon as I get up and it definitely, like you said, it does, it does help with the, with the mood and productivity. I feel great when I do it. Sure. Um, How long does it take you to do 10,000 steps? Uh, about an hour 45. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 Uh, so it's like 45 minutes to an hour or like an hour and 45 minutes, an hour and 45 minutes. Yeah. Cause oh, I'm, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's a long time, man. It is. It is. But it's like, well, once I get it out the way, it's like, ah, oh, now I can go like get my first big meal in and I'm, I've already sure. just did that. It's like perfect. Um, do I'm you probably, like read while you're on the treadmill or like, what do you do? Dude, I'm smashing out work. I'm taking consoles. Like it's, okay. yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, at least you're killing two birds with one stone. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Or multiple birds. It sounds like you're doing a lot of things <laughs> during that hour 45. So that's, that's cool. If I was just like on a treadmill, like not doing anything, I'd be like, Oh, okay, this, this needs to stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Cause, um, I did experiment with like just carb backloading at the, at the start of lockdown. I'm like, I might just change things up a bit. Let's see what impact carb backloading has on my performance. And I'm actually curious to hear your thoughts on this sort of this protocol. Have you ever personally tried it yourself? I never really did true carb backloading. Um, I have so there's been multiple periods of my life where my first meal would just be high fat, high protein and like fibrous vegetables. Um, 
but I would never wait until like two, three or 6 PM to start my carbs. So it was just meal one right. would be high fat fiber and, and high protein. So it would usually be a vegetable egg omelet with like turkey bacon. So it'd be like, you know, onions, garlic, pepper, um, broccoli, whatever it may be, spinach. And then like a lot of whole eggs, like five to six whole eggs and a couple pieces of turkey bacon. Yeah. So I've done that a lot. Um, but then like my next meal has carbs in it. So I would say I never done like true carb backloading. I don't think there's honestly, I don't think there's any advantage to it per se. I think um, people need to take into consideration when are they most physically active? Um, if you, you, your, your carbs should be highest around your activity. So, um, you know, if you're training at 7 PM after work or 6 PM after work, then yeah, the, the larger carb meal should be around then like later in the evening. But if I was training at 7 a.m., I would definitely carb carb load immediately post-workout and everything like that. So it's very context-dependent. Mm. Um, I do think there can be an advantage regardless of what time of day you're eating the majority of your carbs. I do think there is an advantage to potentially having one meal per day that is high fat, high protein, high fiber, and very low carb where you're just getting like fibrous vegetable. I think that's just like a good um, potential habit to build. And it also kind of gives your body an opportunity. Like it, it, it doesn't require insulin levels to increase after every single feeding. Yeah, It's not, it's giving you your body an opportunity to not potentially use glucose as the primary fuel source. And you might be actually burning fat as your primary fuel source for, you know, a larger percent of the energy being expended at that time is actually coming from fat rather than carbs. So mm. I do think there can be an advantage there. Um, but the, the scientific evidence is, is really, really weak, if anything at all. So um, I think personal preferences come into play and, you know, experiment with it. If you like it, stick with it. If you don't like it, you know, go back to your old habits. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, let's, um, out of curiosity, again, with carbohydrate intake, when you're, let's say in a bulking phase, I know you probably kept your protein. You probably ma- you kept it maxed out at what, like 2.2 grams per kilogram in a bulking my, phase. My protein. Yeah. Uh, I've never gone over 250. Yeah. Yeah. 250 grams per day. Just not really realistic and feasible to me. Yeah. Um, when I do 250, I just try to do five meals at 50 grams. Um, so that's what it typically looks like for me. Sometimes it's a little lower. Like I might do a couple meals at 40 and a couple meals at 60, but generally speaking, it's just five meals at 50. Well, what about, what about all the bro science out there that says, uh, you can only absorb 28 grams of protein per meal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really bad information. Uh, that super common myth, you know, that should be addressed. I think, um, the reason that started is because there is a anabolic threshold where consuming more protein isn't necessarily more anabolic on muscle tissue, but your body will absolutely digest, absorb and assimilate every gram of protein that you put in it. So, Mm. um, there is a, actually there's, there's a number for that. There's a certain amount of leucine that you can consume in a meal and it's going to maximize the protein synthetic response. So, um, that number is actually 0.045 grams of leucine per kilogram of body weight. So it's relative to your size. 
I already know what it, what it is, like how it breaks down for me based on protein sources. So I'll just give you guys like a quick list, like a quick example. Sure. So for someone that's like 180 pounds, like me, um, if I consume 35 grams of whey protein, that's going to maximize my protein <clears throat> synthetic response because whey is very, very high in leucine and the branched chain amino acids. Um, so if I have 35 grams of protein or 55 grams of protein, the 55 grams of protein didn't increase muscle protein synthesis to a larger degree than the 35 grams. However, it might have prolonged the duration of it because I had more total amino acids. Right. But it didn't like the way I explain muscle protein synthesis is it's not an on and off switch, it's actually a dimmer. So just think about putting the light bulbs on a dimmer switch. If I eat 15 grams of protein, of high quality protein, I'm still going to turn on muscle protein synthesis just to a very small degree. So the lights are going to go on the room, but it's going to be really dim. If I hit that 35 gram of whey protein uh, mark, the lights are going to go all the way on. So I'm maximizing protein synthesis. And then like the more protein you have, you can be prolonging how long the lights are staying on. Yeah. Make sense? sense. And then it's different for, for food sources. So um, if I were to have chicken, I would need closer to like 48 grams of protein from chicken because there's not as much leucine in chicken compared to whey. Same thing for steak and salmon. Um, so yeah, that varies on size. If I was like a 120 pound bikini girl, you know, I can get away with 22 grams of whey. I don't need 35 grams. There's a really cool study. Um, I believe it was done in the UK. McNaughton and colleagues, they finally compared. And, and another reason this occurred was the, the first scientific evidence about like post-workout protein for protein synthetic response. Um, yeah, for MPS purposes, it was literally done on one body part performing one exercise. So wow. they would have subjects do like um, bilateral uh, leg extensions, just a, a normal knee extension. Maybe they're doing like four sets of 15 and you have to take a muscle biopsy and measure the protein synthetic response pre and post. So it's a very invasive process, but it lacked ecological validity because they only trained one muscle group and they only trained one exercise. Mm -hmm. um, these other researchers said, well, that's not how people actually work out. What if we do a whole body workout? We do bench press, we do pull downs, we do lateral raises and we do leg press. So we did legs, we did upper body. They found that the group consuming 40 grams of whey did have a higher protein synthetic response compared to the group having 20 grams for whey. And that's a much more realistic scenario. You're training more muscle groups. You're creating more muscle protein breakdown, right? You're creating more damage. So you need more protein to recover post-workout. Mm. So I think part of it was just poor information from just like, society, like fitness magazines, whatever it may be, or like bros in the gym, like old school thoughts. And then also like the first pieces of evidence that we saw in the scientific literature wasn't looking at the whole puzzle. It was like a very zoomed in snapshot and people were like taking that information and running with it mm. um, rather than like critically thinking and saying like, well, hey, is that the entire piece of the puzzle? Fascinating. Okay. Well, out of curiosity again, Chris, what what areas of research within exercise science realm and, or, or nutrition, which areas are you like really excited to see more research on or like really desperate to see more research on? Man, um, 
a lot of people, at least in the space I'm in, they want to see more research on advanced lifters and advanced bodybuilders. Um, it would be cool to see that, but I genuinely do not believe it's ever going to happen. <laughs> the reason for that is there's so many bodybuilders here in Tampa where I live, right? And if I told them, hey, I want to run a really cool study on the highest trained individuals for eight to 10 weeks, and you need to come to the lab three days per week, you need to do the exact workout that I prescribe to you, and you're not allowed to train outside of the lab at all, they're going to do this to me. They're going <laughs> to say, I like my training. I'm going to keep doing what I want to do. And that's what happens. And it's so funny because they're like the advanced bodybuilder on social media is the first one to like critique research and like, Oh, well, that's an untrained people or like moderately trained or like intermediate level people or just like normal college students that have been lifting for, you know, <laughs> one to four years. They're like, that's not me. I've been lifting for eight years or 12 years and like I'm advanced and yada, yada. It's like, yeah, I understand that. And there's so many researchers around the world that would love to investigate people like you, but you won't participate for eight to 10 weeks and actually stop doing what you're currently doing and listen to us. So mm. I don't think it's going to change, um, but it would be cool to see. Like the only thing I'm doing now with super high level athletes is case studies, but it's still N equals one. It's not like comparing this exercise intervention to that exercise intervention. It's just <clears throat> gathering everything they're doing and then putting it out there so people can see what they're doing and like what results they're producing based on what you're doing mm. with those with those n equal one studies like the, the case studies you're doing now what's something unique you've you've noticed so far like about these advanced lifters well it's pretty cool man so this is kind of just getting underway um but i'm actually comparing enhanced bodybuilders to natural bodybuilders awesome so i'm really cool i'm really excited to see how um <clears throat> how the process is different during a contest prep. So when you have a natural person that's trying to get absolutely shredded, their ability to preserve their muscle mass yeah. is way harder. So I don't expect any of these like high level naturals to gain muscle and lose fat at the same time. I'm expecting them to just preserve as much as possible while losing fat and getting shredded. But a lot of them will lose some sort of lean body mass if they get like very, very lean. On the opposite end of the spectrum, I'm probably going to see some of these enhanced people not only preserve muscle, but I probably will see them gain muscle and lose fat at the same time, even though A, they're extremely advanced and B, getting the, you know very, very low levels of body fat. Um, and then from like a hormonal and physiological standpoint, I'm, I'm running blood work on them too. So I'm expecting to see a lot more, you know, quote unquote, negative hormonal adaptations occur to these naturals. Whereas a lot of the advanced athletes are supplementing with exogenous hormones. So their lipids and their blood work is going to look way different compared to a natural athlete. So mm. um, it'll be cool to see overall. Uh, it'll be nice. I'm trying to get like, you know, five to eight, really high level naturals and five to eight really high level, um, advanced athletes and do like singular case studies on them and then do a case series that compares uh, both sides. Yeah. That'll be, that'll be really fascinating. I'm, uh, 
a lot of people in like in my audience would, would love to see that sort of research. So when yeah. that comes out, man, just hit me up. I'll, I'll share that across my socials. Thanks, man, for sure. So for sure. Chris, that pretty much wraps up the episode. I want to give my um, listeners a chance to see more of your work. I know you, um, you run the School of Gains, is that correct? Yes, yes. That's like my educational platform. Um, so when everything first started off, I, I just started off as a coach. My coaching brand, you know, originally is competitive breed and that still exists for a lot of my competitive physique athletes. Um, but I actually realized over time it was like intimidating to gen pop clients that really needed training and nutrition help. Um, and I was making way more educational content in the nutritional and training realm. And uh, I created the School of Gains because I teach at the university. I have the professor research background. And I also wanted it to be educational beyond things training and nutrition related. Like long term, I want it to be more holistic stuff. I want it to be more just life gains. Um, I might even put like random financial blog articles up there. Just like random stuff. Have podcasts with like experts of all different fields. So I just want people to make gains in every realm of their life kind of thing. Um, so yeah, that's my educational platform, man. It's just www.schoolofgains.com and gains is spelled with a Z. Um, and then on there, you'll find like free blog articles, free <clears throat> educational videos, and then my coaching with my team. So I have an RD on staff. I have two other coaches that work with me and also my paid content. So my paid content's like my training schedule, uh, sorry, my training programs, and my nutrition ebook, the ultimate guide to body recomposition that I did with Jeff Nippard. So well, that's a really cool resource that like gives you a step-by-step process on how to set up your diet and like the science behind it and why. Mm. So Amazing, man. Just for those listening in, Jeff Nippard is, uh, well, he's probably one of the biggest um, fitness channels on YouTube, right? Like hundred percent. Yeah. He has over 2 million subscribers now on YouTube. Great. He's killing it. Yeah. Super good content, very educational stuff. Awesome. Well, I'll be linking all of those resources in the show notes, guys. For those listening in, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. It's been a pleasure. Um, My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me on. It was great, great conversation. Awesome. Thank you, everyone, for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.